Hi, thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. This week is the second of our summer specials, with articles chosen and recorded by Graham Tomlin and Paula Hind. Graham is the director of the Centre for Cultural Witness, and Paula is the executive manager. The Centre for Cultural Witness produces the Seen and Unseen website and the Seen and Unseen Aloud podcast, among other projects. The Healing Potential of the F-Word by Julie Canlis. Last week, the National Parliamentary Prayer Breakfast convened with a focus on the power of the F-Word in public life. In our cultural moment, we prefer score-settling and retribution to what was once a cherished value, forgiveness. Can the Christian story offer anything to an era which is caught in endless cycles of violence, conflict, injustice and vengeance? In our lifetime, we've seen the experiment of what happens when a whole country dedicates itself to forgiveness. In South Africa, overcoming the trauma of apartheid did not mean forgetting, but choosing to remember collectively. Evil was named. But could this kind of truth set one free? There were no shortcuts to forgiveness. There was no quick wiping the slate clean that avoided the truth. Instead, perpetrators were faced with real people and stories of what they had done. Victims recounted their trauma, but in a new way that enabled them to stop being the victim of what had happened to them. In South Africa, forgiveness was not religiously sanctioned denial. It offered the victims agency and release from the cycle of vengeance. From South Africa, we learned the power of sharing trauma stories. We discovered the importance of looking for underlying causes and ideologies that are contributing factors. But that was not the end. We also watched the power of restorative narratives, testifying to the beautiful fragility and hope of reconciliation. Without forgiveness, no relationship on a personal or national scale can be sustained. What would it look like to begin to create a forgiveness culture amidst a culture of hate? In the fourth century, there were communities of Christians who fled the Roman Empire and set up shop in the desert. They gave their life to prayer and forgiveness because they found that despite fleeing from the sins of Rome, they could not escape themselves. They were in the desert with a handful of other people, and yet their hearts still contained hatred. They did not have muscle memory oriented towards forgiveness. And so they relentlessly practiced forgiveness. They practiced it by stopping the incessant outward glance at other people's faults. They asked forgiveness constantly in a bold attempt to own their own culpability and blindness. And they ritualise this practice in a once-yearly Forgiveness Sunday, which makes many of us squirm just to think of it. The Sunday before Lent, everyone in the community would extend a word of forgiveness to each person and beg their forgiveness in turn. Forgiveness Sunday is still practised annually in Eastern Christian churches, often Greek or Russian, where you can still wander in on the Sunday before Lent and work on your F-word, muscle memory. In case you find yourself in one of these churches, the script goes something like this. Person one, forgive me, sister. Person two, God forgives you, and so do I. Forgive me, brother. Person one, God forgives you, and I forgive you. Now, of course, this exchange can be wrote. But for some for whom there has been anything amiss, eyes well up with tears. Perhaps it's the letting go of an exhausting grudge. 
brothers, hearing that they are forgiven 40 times, finally cracks through a self-defeating wall. And for everyone, it's a commitment to not constantly ruminate on the wrongs of others, reliving incidents to keep the anger going. If done rightly, it allows for the recognition of wrong, while not allowing it to perpetuate itself in you. In essence, it's the cheapest mental health shortcut available at a church near you. Back in the 4th century, Forgiveness Sunday arose as a circumstantial necessity because these desert dwellers would retreat even further into the desert for Lent. Call it a detox camp. Call it a therapeutic immersion. Call it a technology fast. Regardless, due to the dangers of the desert, wild animals and a hostile environment, these Christians wanted to receive the forgiveness of their brothers and sisters and offer it in case they did not return to the community to celebrate Easter. For us, a modern equivalent might be simply to enter the liturgical time of confession and forgiveness on a regular Sunday and to lean more deeply into the well-worn phrase, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Would it be possible to treat these words with a whole new level of personal responsibility and vulnerability? Forgiveness, when taken seriously, is a process that takes time. Forgiveness involves great courage, but also the great humble realisation that we could have just as easily done the very act that needed forgiving under different circumstances. Forgiveness involves neither appeasement nor grovelling. For the Church, the ritualised understanding of Forgiveness Sunday is the humble declaration that we are both victims and perpetrators, and that somehow Christ accompanies us in the grief of both. In the Christian tradition, Jesus founded his new order upon forgiveness. Jesus knew that the unforgiving heart is closed to not just giving forgiveness, but to receiving it. It is sealed up like a tomb. That those who are least forgiving also live daily with the fiercest critic themselves. In other sayings, Jesus highlights that forgiveness is not merely an interior disposition, but also one honours the integrity of the process of working through an injury. And finally, Christians believe that Jesus practised what he preached. He forgave his enemies and died for them to secure divine forgiveness for everyone. For his followers, they had no choice but to forgive. But many of them ended up founding communities of forgiveness. Language of Politics Can't Domesticate Religion by me, Graham Tomlin. The New Statesman recently released their Left Power List, the 50 most influential people shaping Britain's progressive politics. As I read it through, one name caught my eye, Justin Welby. He comes in a comfortable mid-table position at number 27, behind Gary Lineker and J.K. Rowling, and ahead of Gordon Brown and Marcus Rashford. Now, the Archbishop of Canterbury may perhaps be a strange addition to a list of left-leaning figures. Not all his predecessors have been so. His predecessor but two, George Carey, is often seen espousing views from the right. It's not accidental that the present Archbishop has served in times of a Conservative government while George Carey held the role during the latter years of New Labour. It is perhaps the job of Archbishops to hold the government of the day to account, so perhaps not surprising that Welby is seen as a critic of the Conservatives. If the government of his time had been Labour, perhaps he would be seen very differently. However, what got me thinking was not so much the identification of the Archbishop as left-leaning, 
but the co-option of the church's voice into the wider narrative of the left-right political spectrum. The language of left and right dates back to the French Revolution, where in the National Assembly, the supporters of the king sat to the right of the president and the revolutionaries sat to his left. Subsequent governmental institutions in France continued the seating arrangements and the language became embedded in political discourse far beyond France. Since then, the left has always been associated with ideas such as freedom, progress, equality and reform. The right has valued older institutions of social life such as family, locality, individual responsibility, duty, tradition and so on. Now, left and right is a structure of political life with which we are very familiar. When it comes to co-opting religious perspectives, it misses so much of what makes them interesting. It has no place for God, for revelation, for prayer, for the mystical and the miraculous, the hosts of angels, the language of virtue, or the surprising delight of grace. It shoehorns religion into the Procrustean bed of a political ideology that cannot do justice to the true nature of religion. It emasculates it of all that makes it interesting and distinct. Now, this attempt to domesticate religion has a long pedigree. The Christian church was born into a world dominated politically by the Roman Empire and religiously by paganism. This new claim that the God behind all things had revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ was definitely awkward, but by and large, pagans were happy to fit it into their view of the world, if only the Christians were happy to regard Jesus as yet one more God alongside the other gods, a private option for those who preferred that kind of God, as opposed to Jupiter, Mercury or Aphrodite. The early Christians, however, refused to comply. They insisted that Jesus was God, not just a God. They resisted their founder being co-opted into the pagan pantheon, or even the Roman imperial regime, refusing by and large to serve in the army if that meant killing their enemies in defiance of Jesus' command to love them, or offering worship to the gods in civic festivals even when their contemporaries could not understand and there is this refusal to join in what to them was just some harmless ritual to keep the gods happy. Even more, the early Christian thinkers such as Athanasius argued that the coming of Christ into the world was too seismic an intervention to be simply co-opted into existing paradigms. In particular, the resurrection of Christ was either a gigantic hoax or an invitation to rethink reality all over again from a new starting point. That humanity's greatest enemy, death itself, had been defeated once and for all. As the theologian Leslie Newbegin put it, at the heart of the Christian message was a new fact. God had acted in a way that, if believed, must henceforth determine all our ways of thinking. It could not merely fit into existing ways of understanding the world without fundamentally changing them. According to Athanasius, it provided a new arche, a new starting point for all human understanding of the world. It couldn't form part of any worldview except one of which it was the basis. Thus, Christianity was bound to transcend the political structures of its time, or any time for that matter. A bold Christianity, true to itself, could not just be co-opted within an alien political or social structure. It was always going to be an awkward bedfellow with the empire. Now, in more recent years, a number of theologians have made the same point. Philosopher and theologian John Milbank wrote a groundbreaking book in the 1990s called Christianity and Social Theory, where he criticised the whole venture of the sociology of religion as domesticating Christian faith into an alien structure of thought, where society was taken as a given and religious faith explained away by secular theoretical categories. Sociology, for him, 
was its own non-neutral theology, a rival discourse to Christianity, what he called a secular policing of the sublime. This was domesticating faith and reducing it to fit in with the narrow categories of sociological theory. More recently, James Mumford, in his short book Vexed, written with half an eye to the American experience, shows again how Christianity just refuses to fit into foreign categories that try to tame it, and how consistently it blows apart the moral and political packages that both left and right offer us in modern life. So, for example, the deeply Christian notion of the sanctity of life, that human life is sacred to be respected in all its forms, and that it cannot be taken away by another human being, leads both to an abhorrence of unwarranted abortion, the American right cheers at this point, yet also to a restriction of the right to carry guns that take life, not so popular among the Republican base. Conservatives prize family values, yet are also sometimes happy to allow economic competition to permit zero-hour contracts that make desperate parents vulnerable to shifts in the market that mean they cannot feed their families. Christians might agree with the first of these, but disagree with the second. Similarly, the left prizes inclusivity, yet at the same time promotes assisted dying, balking at extending this inclusivity to the elderly person, who might have to make an active choice to go on living when pressure may mount to leave their money to their offspring and to vacate the scene early. Again, the left champions a sexual revolution, yet despite its suspicion of economic liberalism, holds back from a critique of the consumerism of much sexual culture, that values being able to move on to new sexual partners as desire dictates. And so, Mumford argues, Christians may find themselves adopting a strange mix of beliefs and opinions, or perhaps only strange when seen from the perspective of a secular mindset, opposed to unwarranted abortion, yet in favour of gun control, in favour of family life, yet wanting economic intervention to the labour market to ensure proper pay for workers. Now, the point here is not so much to argue that Christians have a unique political viewpoint that is distinct from left or right, but that Christianity is more than politics. Beneath the surface of Christian political convictions, such as those that come from the Archbishop, lie, or maybe should lie, a whole host of deeper commitments to God, to the insights that come in prayer, to the most vulnerable in society, to a sense of a deep order and structures to the world that cannot be toyed with by progressive political fantasies to the reality of resurrection. None of these quite fit the simple left-right equation. Now, the bishops may or may not be right in their political pronouncements, and there's room for debate on that, but trying to make them fit into the narrow categories of mere politics just doesn't work. God is too big for that. article I have chosen is A Sky Full of Stars, Lessons on Awe from Coldplay's Concert by Belle Tyndall. I chose this article, one, because I confess to be a die-hard Coldplay fan, but secondly, because I love how it unpacks what it feels like to have a sense of awe and wonder. The line, awe is an emotional reminder that we are small, struck me as I recognise my own craving for the transcendent and the vast. Reading Bell's article, I was left reminded that feeling awe and wonder is often what keeps me connected to the world, to God and to myself. A Sky Full of Stars Lessons on Awe from Coldplay's Concert by Bell Tyndall Coldplay are about to wrap up the European leg of their Music of the Spheres tour, their multi-year-long and literally worldwide spectacle. When I say spectacle... 
I really mean it. The three-hour-long show is nothing short of an audiovisual marvel, one that they've played to millions of people over the past year or so, and a couple of weeks ago. I was, rather unexpectedly, one of them. Hold your personal tastes for a while, leave your Coldplay Make Me Cringe critiques at the door, you can pick them back up at the end, and allow me to paint a picture for you. The band adorn alien masks, they duet with a puppet, they dance upon a stage that changes colour beneath their feet, they release a tidal wave of giant beach balls, they dance through a downpour of confetti, and they bring it to an end under a canopy of fireworks. That's not to mention their most infamous party trick, the wristbands that turn the audience themselves into the light show. The result is, as you can imagine, utterly breathtaking. The crowd become a panoramic murmuration of colour that dances around the stadium. Aside from the long queues for the bathroom and the sticky folding seats, the escapism is all-encompassing. It doesn't falter for a moment. All of it made all the more wholesome for knowing that it's being powered, at least in part, by the kinetic dance floor and the spin bikes towards the back of the stadium. And I know what you're thinking. I haven't even mentioned the music yet. What is there to say? Hearing 90,000 people belt out words as heart-wrenchingly vulnerable and honest as nobody said it was easy, no one ever said it would be this hard, on a cloudy Wednesday evening, was as powerful as you would expect. Strikingly countercultural too. Where does all that emotional honesty hide when it's not coaxed out by nights like this? But that's a question for another article. Watching those same 90,000 people put their arms around the ones they love as they sing the words of the cosmically-minded love song Yellow, and then in the next moment dance with abandon to a venture of a lifetime was a joy to behold. A people watcher's paradise. A true case study in human nature and emotion. And that leads me to the premise of this piece, which is not wholly to gush over Coldplay. As I observed these 90,000 strangers, many of whom had travelled a considerable distance to commune together in this place at this time, I was reminded that humans are made with an inherent need for awe and wonder. There is something innate within us that is awoken when we are faced with something great, something that transcends us as an individual, that resides outside of ourselves. And that is exactly what I witnessed. More interesting than any firework display was the sight of 90,000 people who had pressed pause on the daily rhythms of their lives and gone on a pilgrimage in search of awe and wonder. Awe and wonder are admittedly elusive emotions, notoriously hard to define and harder still to analyse. As a result, they have been largely understudied and overlooked. However, the one thing we do know about awe and wonder is that they are among the most precious and powerful emotions a person will experience. Dacher Keltner, a psychologist at the forefront of a surge of research into the complexities of awe, proposes that awe is distinct. It is not interchangeable with joy or fear, ecstasy or horror. Rather, raw awe 
is a particular state that comes as a result of experiencing vastness. As Keltner writes, or arises encounters with stimuli that are vast or beyond one's current perceptual frame of reference. Vastness can be physical, perceptual or semantic and requires that extant knowledge structures be accommodated to make sense of what is being perceived. In short, awe is an emotional reminder that we are small. It is perhaps surprising that coming face to face with our minute nature equates to mental and spiritual well-being. Our individualistic society would have us believe that such a reality should bring forth feelings of desolation or a fear of oblivion, that all must therefore be a gateway to some kind of existential crisis. But not so. Numerous studies tell us that is simply not the case. Believe it or not, we humans benefit from coming face to face with our smallness. It has recently been suggested that cultivating awe on a regular basis can ease stress, depression and anxiety. It can improve our sleep, increase our creative capabilities and even reduce inflammation. It is a core premise that underlies the 12-step program, an acknowledgement that there is something bigger than oneself and therefore stronger than one's addiction, continues to aid countless people in their recovery. Referring once again to Keltner, he proposes that when awe is notably absent from a person's routine, narcissism, materialism and a deep sense of disconnection from anything that resides outside themselves become its inevitable substitutes. And what's more, we actually enjoy awe. We crave it. We go out of our way to seek it out. We build telescopes and gaze into space. We flock to areas of outstanding beauty. We take pictures of sunsets. We revisit ancient ruins. We study pieces of art. We sing our hearts out in stadiums brimming with complete strangers. It's fascinating. The more you allow yourself to dwell on the nature of awe, the more interesting it becomes. How remarkable that even in a society that is largely built upon premises such as Albert Einstein's everything they did really great and inspiring is created by the individual, we seem to have a biological affront to this, something ingrained that tells us that this is not true. Of course, I imagine you've been waiting for me to bring God into all of this. To say that any awe the world can offer is but a mere glimpse to allude to something similar to what C.S. Lewis said, that if you find yourself with a desire that no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that you are made for another world and subsequently suggest that the seen cannot compare with the unseen. I suppose it could absolutely be argued that our craving for bigger things is a symptom of our craving for the bigger thing. That our wonder at all things transcendent is a taste of the wonder on offer from the transcendent. And that is certainly an intriguing thought. That's the kind of thought that has led the likes of Paul Kingsnorth into Christianity and David Baddiel to oppose it. Do we crave vastness and need awe because we crave and need God? Or do we crave, or as Badil would argue, create God, because we crave vastness and need awe? 
Such a thought could be pondered for a lifetime, and I suppose now would be as good a time as any to start. But for now, I shall return to where I started, sitting on seat M22 at a Coldplay concert, just one of a sea of 90,000 people, all listening to a set list of songs that have become cultural artefacts. Each tune that bellowed from Cardiff's Principality Stadium during Coldplay's residency gathered countless individual stories and bound them together into a wondrous collective sound. It both belonged to every person there and transcended them. If you ever found yourself in need of a lesson in awe, I would heartily recommend. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to get more curated articles from Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you discover a world that is greater, more full of meaning and sense than you ever imagined.